pleasure to be here with you. I hope you had a great week this week. Uh, as uh, Chris just mentioned, we're continuing our series, Flipped. And uh, rather than talking about taking uh, old houses and then restoring them and then flipping them over for a profit, kind of like you see on HGTV, we've actually been talking about the kingdom of God. And if you're wondering, because you weren't here last week, how in the world do those two things go together? Don't worry. I'm going to go ahead and repeat last week's sermon for you right before this one's. I'm just kidding. I, but I will kind of bring you up to speed for those of you who weren't here and kind of recap what we talked about last week. Uh, we learned that we can't gain admittance into the kingdom of God. So sorry to tell you that. So there it is. But there is good news. The good news is that Jesus freely gives us the admittance into the kingdom of God through his grace. It's a free gift of grace that we activate through simple faith. And the amazing thing about this, this is it's a gift. We can't earn it. And not only can we not earn it, but we don't deserve it. You know, one of Jesus' closest followers and his friend, Peter, would later write in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Doesn't that sound great? trouble is, we as humans, we have this tendency to let our pride get in our way because we strive to have more and to know more and to do more. And we count on that to make our way to God. And in doing so, we make our tradition into our religion. But none of those things can actually get us to God. Instead, if we were to simply stop striving to have more, and simply surrender. If we don't rely on what we know or what we don't know or how we were raised, but simply have faith, and if we, we don't count on the great things that we have done to try to get our way to God, and instead we accept his free gift of grace, then we flip our tradition into transformation. A transformation that allows us to be regenerated and to get our way to God and into his kingdom. And last week I mentioned that Jesus taught on the kingdom of God more than he taught on anything else during his ministry. But that phrase, kingdom of God, it seems really churchy and really hard to relate to. But as we broke that down last week, we're, we're really talking about where God lives, where we find God, where we find God, the king of the universe. And in modern urban dictionary language, we would just refer to that as God's crib. It's where he is. It's where he lives. And those of us who place our faith and trust in him, we are his subjects. He's the king of this kingdom. We are his subjects. We are his people. And that's what this series is about. It's about the people in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus came along and he totally flipped 
the common understanding of what it was to be in the kingdom of God. And if we were to take everything that he taught about uh, what it's like to be one of his people in the kingdom of God, it would be one sentence that we could, would say would be this. It would be that there is something new for all of us to be a part of, and it's coming soon. And each week, we're going to break down a piece of that setup statement. Last week, we talked about something new, which answered the question, how do we get to God? Now, this morning, we're going to answer the question for all of us. That part of the sentence that says, this is something new for all of us. Now, as for all of us, I have to acknowledge, it's been a very busy week. I know it's been crazy for me. I just got back from being on a business trip in Seattle, you know, so I feel like I've been playing catch-up all week. And I know it's been a very uh, newsworthy week, too, but we won't talk about that, the current affairs and such. But I will say, haven't we had an amazing weather show this week? I mean, we have, we have had thunderstorms. We've had hail. You know, this is that time of year in the spring, especially in April, where you can have literally every type of weather all in one day. You can have sunshine, rain, wind. You can have hail, even snow. And you know where my brother lives in Minnesota right now? They don't just have inches of snow that have just fallen. They have feet. Same is true earlier this week for, from where my wife grew up in Canada. And I'll tell you, this season of life for the Matlock family, it's been like that spring weather. It's been busy, it's been hectic, and very uncertain. It's been hard for Annette and I to concentrate on anything other than the fact that we have a graduating senior in high school and all the uncertainty that comes with that in making the decisions, what, what is she going to do in her future and where is she going to be living this coming fall? In fact, she wasn't with us last weekend because she was on a college visit with her school. And little did we know that we were nominated for the Parent of the Year Award because we were the only parents who did not join her on that trip. (laughs) But Tori, she's a a wonderful young lady. She took that all in stride. We know one thing for sure. Whatever she does, it's going to be in an area of compassion. She's going to be probably working overseas, doing mission work of some, some type, and especially caring for children. Oh, a little over a year ago, she went on a mission trip to Jamaica uh, and actually cared for children in an orphanage is there. And um, I have to say that as we're coming to this stage of our lives and we're reminiscing on all the memories and looking through all those old pictures, we should have seen that passion in her coming at a very early age. Because there she is, little Tori, and she's, she's caring for her care bears, only now she's caring for orphans. Now her brother, on the other hand, he, his passions are different. He really wants to fly. He's always wanted to fly, ever since he was little, all the way to now. In fact, he's not with us this weekend because he's actually at a leadership conference with the Civil Air Patrol. And as we were reminiscing through all these old pictures, we're still not sure where he got this idea of flying from. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I have to say, I loved playing with the kids when they were little, and... um, that was a special time, and I am I, amazed at how much they trusted me, to be honest with you, because I, I can look back at this and I say it's a good thing that the authorities didn't get their hands on some of these pictures. They probably would have taken them away. 
But kids, they're special. And that's fitting, actually, as we attempt to answer and understand this question about the people in the kingdom of God. Because as we turn to this question about all of us, we're really asking the question, what did Jesus say about the people in the kingdom of God? Now, he said many things about the people in the kingdom of God, and every time he taught on the kingdom of God, he had a way of saying things and doing things that totally turned the tables on what people were were thinking at the day. And in a very countercultural move, he didn't surround himself with the most devout seekers and students of God. Instead, he surrounded himself, and he hung out with, and he ate with, and and shared his life with outcasts, with misfits, with rejects, with prostitutes, foreigners, and just broken people in general. You see, that's how he flipped this understanding of what it meant to be accepted into his kingdom. You see, for him, it wasn't the righteous. It was the broken. And probably the best example of what he taught about the people in his kingdom, it's found in one of the records from one of his own disciples, his own friends, Matthew. And in fact, our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. So if you have your copy of the Bible with you or you have a device that you'd like to follow along with, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Matthew 18... Verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So in this scene, we see the disciples are coming to settle an argument And throughout the recorded Gospels of what they did, they have this knack for showing their unrighteous curiosity. And they disguised it as this intellectual curiosity. They just really wanted to know the answer. But the problem was, what they were really after was position. It was status. It was favor in this kingdom of God. And Jesus, he flips that question over on them. And instead, he has a kid come in and stand in front of them. He says, hey, you guys want to be great? Then you need to be like this little guy or little gal here. And the disciples, when they saw that, they literally gasped. And they're thinking, really? A kid? Seriously? He must be joking around with us. Hey, are we on one of those hidden camera shows? But Jesus, he goes on. He says, unless you become like this little one, you ain't getting into the kingdom. Plus, the more like a child you are, the greater you're going to be in that kingdom. 
And I'll tell you this too. The way that you treat children equals how you treat me. Now what we need to know about the people who Jesus was dealing with at the time was that they definitely saw this pecking order when it came to people. You see hints of this when you read the Bible and especially through the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Throughout most of recorded history, if you've studied history, you know this, that most societies have been patriarchal societies. That means that they considered men more important, significant, and worthy than women. And unfortunately, in many places in the world and in many cultures, that's still true. And the same was and is true when it came to children. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he came to a world that certainly viewed children as best not seen, heard, or touched. And we don't get that. We don't relate to that because we love our children. (laughs) We love to dote on them. And we love to make sure that they're safe and that they're cared for and that they're happy. We try to give them a better life than we've had. And let's face it, there's nothing more attractive than a man who's playing with his young children. But not so in Jesus' day. And I don't want to give you the impression that all Jewish men at the time were just monsters. Historians have, have noted that the rabbis, even in Judea, had taught men to care for their wives and their children. Probably so much so that it made them stand out from the Greeks and the Persians and the Romans who all were very male-dominated societies that viewed women and children as the property of their husbands and their wives. But even so, in public, the last thing that a a Jewish man would want to do would be to gather this sweaty little ragamuffin up into his arms, especially in the middle of a speech that he was giving to his friends who he was trying to impress or convince. You know, sadly... For some, that may still be true. But for the first century Jews, and especially the most elite group, the Pharisees, they saw this clear pecking order of people. At the top, you had them. You had the Pharisees. You know, and somewhere below them, just below them, you had Jewish men. But everybody kind of went down from there. And if you were a woman, you drew the short straw. And if you were not a Jew, you drew the short straw. And if you were born with an illness or a handicap, that probably meant that you were cursed and we need to stay away from you. Certainly if you were rough around the edges or you messed up or you'd made mistakes in your life, well, you were an outcast despised by both God and men. They even had a problem with people who ate pork and raised pigs. But the very low end of the totem pole was the children. That wasn't least until they became adults And that was only if they were boys. Perhaps the only thing that children in in the Jewish culture were considered better than at the time were Samaritans of any age because they absolutely despised the Samaritans. So much so that probably the only thing that would have been more off-putting to a Jewish man, and definitely the Pharisees, was a young Samaritan girl who was raised on a pig farm and who rode around in a wagon that had a bumper sticker that said, I'll become vegetarian when bacon grows on trees. And who told all of her friends that when she grew up, she wanted to be the world's first female tax collector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the truth is that the people that God chose to bless 
the world, the Jews, were what we would now consider to be very close-minded, exclusive, judgmental, even bigoted. But Jesus came along and he totally flipped that on its head. The one whom God sent to be the king, the one whom God sent to make all right with the world, he was totally counter-cultural. Jesus valued and embraced all people without exceptions. Even and especially the people that others had seemingly thrown away or cast aside. Women, children, the poor, the sick, the handicapped, the foreigners, whether they were saints or whether they were sinners, lepers or tax collectors, he totally ignored all of the social customs and and violated all the codes and all the pecking orders and all the class rankings of the day. And certainly the man who penned the words that we just read this morning understood that more than most. Matthew was a tax collector, which means he was despised and considered worse than all sinners because he would collect unreasonable amounts of money from his own countrymen and turn it over to the the Roman authorities. And his living was made on the commission that he made from those collections. But Jesus came along and he accepted him. Not only that, he went over to Matthew's house for a party and hung out with all of his tax-collecting buddies. And we read this morning from that passage in Matthew, but he isn't the only one who wrote about this. We see these same words, the same teaching in both the Gospels of Mark and Luke. All three of what Bible students refer to as the synoptic Gospels contain this teaching, which means it's really important. And it is important because it's a key to understanding the kingdom of God. And that brings us to our big idea for this morning. And that is that God shows favor to no one except for those who freely submit to him. Now, I have to apologize. It is my fault. There is a typo in your sermon notes because it should say God shows favor to no one except for those who, not you, freely submit to him. Now, if we were to break this down further, this truth has two major implications. The first is that we must humble ourselves before God. We must humble ourselves before God. We can't do anything to earn our favor or status with God. We've already learned that the only way to God is through faith in his free grace. And that's why he tells his disciples that you need to become like children. Because children are wholly dependent on adults. They depend on them for safety, for food. They depend on them for care and for knowledge. And not only are they innocent, but they're also simple. They know who they are, and they know who they aren't. They know they need us. That's why they get scared when they're left alone. That's why they cry when we leave the room. Anyone with a little one in the nursery, they know that. And their memories are short, which is why they're always needy. But because their memories are short, it's also why they're absolutely crazy about us as their parents or their caregivers. You see, there's nothing more humbling than admitting total dependence upon 
and clinging to someone that you totally are dependent on. That's what Jesus wants from us. And Jesus tells us that doing so not only gets us admission into the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven, but also is how we become great and significant in that kingdom. Now, clearly, this passage has real implications for real, actual children. Clearly, Jesus places a high value on children, and so should we. And we at this church here at Trinity have historically done just that. We've placed a high value on our children and our youth. It's no secret that when we started to build and expand, the first thing we did was to create more capacity to serve children and youth by creating more classrooms, more meeting spaces, We even reimagined and and redid our nursery. And that's because we know that children make life decisions to follow Jesus. That's how we're going deep as a church in this valley. And it's also how we're taking the gospel and passing it on to the generations behind us. But the implications of Jesus' teaching, they're far wider than even that. The point isn't that we as adults need to become children again. The idea is that like children, we become fully dependent on God. We submit ourselves to Him, and we humble ourselves before Him. We have childlike faith and childlike acceptance of who He is as He actually is and not who we think He ought to be. And that leads us to this next implication, which is really the way that we apply this in our everyday lives. And that is that we should humble ourselves before others. We should humble ourselves before others. Now, the Bible teaches that God chose the Jews as his people. But that choosing was about mission. It was about vocation. They were to be his servant people, serving God and people by bringing light into the world around them. In other words, he wanted them to bring other people into a relationship with him, into the truth. Unfortunately, they chose to see that choosing, if you will, as having this favored, exclusive status in the world. And the one thing that they didn't get was that they served a God that created the entire universe, all of creation. That means that he is the one who has the power and the moral authority to preside over all of it. People, humans, angels, creatures, all creations, all of it. Not just the Jews. And for us today, that still applies. He's the God over all of it. Not just us. Now, I'll tell you, if people view our faith as being one of exclusivity, that's actually a compliment. That's a tribute to our faithfulness to his message. Because, as we learned last week, the way to God is exclusive. Because Jesus told us that he is the way and the truth and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him. But if people view Christians, the church, us, as being exclusive Well, that's an indictment of our methods and our behaviors. Because Jesus never excludes anyone who freely submits to him and places their trust in him. If Jesus shows favor to anyone, it's the people who believe in him and put their trust in him, 
We know that because he promises them eternal life. He promises them free grace and admission into the kingdom of God. Jesus, when he was on the earth, he healed the people that other people gave up on. The ones who the do-gooders thought were just getting what they deserved for the mistakes that they'd made. He spoke kindness and encouragement into the lives of foreigners, adulterers, and criminals. He forgave the sins of the worst sinners. And he promised eternal life to convicts. What we need to understand is that when Jesus sees people, he sees sinners before they come to to know him, and he sees them as children and co-heirs with him after they accept him. When Jesus sees us, he sees sinners who he couldn't love anymore. And when he sees people who we would think are seedy and scary, well, he sees sinners who he could not love more. You see, in his eyes, he flips this. He sees no distinction between people or groups of people. To him, the Pharisee equals the worst sinner, and the worst sinner equals the Pharisee. A woman equals a man, and a man equals a woman. A child equals an adult, and an adult equals a child. The Jew equals the Gentile, and the Gentile equals the Jew, even the Samaritans, the people who the Jews despised. Now, if we were to break that down in our world, that means that the way that he views us, regular churchgoers, equals the person who right now is watching TV at home or at a sports bar or out for a walk. And the regular churchgoer is equal to the person who said, I gave up on religion a long time ago. And the regular churchgoer equals the person that's even the atheist who says, church is for the weak and it makes no sense it's a waste of time we know this because Jesus humbled himself before other people before they ever came to believe in him and in his final act before going to the cross Jesus the God of the universe he bent down and washed the feet of his disciples who had not yet believed and known who he was one of whom when they first met insulted Jesus his family and his hometown A few others that all they did the whole time was bicker over calling shotgun. One who would follow him to the ends of the earth. That's what he said anyway. Until hours later when he denied that he ever knew him to three separate strangers including a little girl because he was afraid. And one of whom who would literally hand him over to the executioner for the equivalent today of a car payment and all of whom would abandon him and scatter to the four winds in his most desperate hour of need. He would later come to call these men friends and brothers adopted by his father to rule with him in his kingdom. And you know, he does the same for all of us. It's because of what Jesus has done that we humble ourselves before him. And it's because of what Jesus has done that we humble ourselves before others. That's why Paul gives us instructions on how to treat other people, including our families, 
He says in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And to submit means to put yourself under the control of. It means to yield yourself to another person. In other words, it means to humble yourself with others the way that you humble yourself with God. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Now, we believe that the Bible is true. That means that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which then means that all of us were born sinners. And while every child is a born sinner, no child was a born bigot. They get that from the older kids and the adults in their life. That's a learned behavior. When I was a kid, I, was, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I know, me as a kid, that seems like a long time ago. But even in the 70s and 80s and, and 90s, it was this huge progressive melting pot of cultures and ethnicities and races and lifestyles. So growing up, it was normal to be surrounded by people who were different from you. In a way, you could say that those of us who grew up like that grew up in a colorblind world. I went to class with and I hung out with and, and uh, was friends with nerds, jocks, the goth kids, and everyone in between. African-American, white, Asian, Hispanic. I remember one of our best friends in our group was a Korean kid who barely spoke any English. And you dare not give the microphone to him because he thought he was a singer, but he was the world's worst. But isn't this true? Unfortunately, it's family and cultural influences that build those stereotypes and biases and prejudices in us. And all of us are guilty of a bias or a prejudice of some sort. You know what they say, haters gonna hate. But isn't that really awful for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus? And I know that includes me. I know that I have thought things, I have said things, I've assumed things, I've let my life be influenced by terrible thoughts, ones that I know are completely out of step with who Jesus is. It's honestly a reminder to me of how much I desperately need his grace. And we need to remind ourselves that the kingdom of God is under the rule and sovereignty of a truly colorblind, class-blind, and merit-blind Lord. And in his kingdom, lovers going to love. The greatest causes of social justice in this world, they derive from God's radical love and acceptance of people. And for anyone here who might not have decided who Jesus is, I don't want you to have the idea that he was judgmental, that he didn't accept outsiders, or that he was prejudiced in any way. Unfortunately, it's those of us who've called ourselves his followers that sometimes don't give him the best reputation. Even early on in the church, they struggled to embrace this new way of relating to people. Throughout history, the church has been the most positive force in the world for breaking down stereotypes and prejudices and discrimination and social barriers. But the church is not without its faults. And even early on, we see the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians and taking them to task for excluding non-Jewish people who were not like them. And that was just a couple decades after Jesus walked on the earth. And since then, the church has struggled to embrace this radical acceptance, 
that Jesus taught us, even today, even us. And I know that might sound harsh, and I know that like, like this stuff that we talked about last week, it's basic, but it's, it's not easy. Membership in God's kingdom means that like a child, we need to humble ourselves before God and humble ourselves before others. Jesus flipped the understanding of the Jews and he flips ours also today. Instead of self-reliance and staunch independence, he says it's dependence on him. He says that we don't always have to try to have the upper hand. We don't always have to be strong. We can be weak because he accepts us in our weakness and he wants us to accept those around us who are weak. He's not looking for people with special favor or status. He desires sincerity. He wants us to be real with him and real with each other. And because of that, he wants us to abandon our pride and embrace humility before him and before each other. He wants us to treat the outcast like their family. And he wants us to do that because he wants us to live lives that shows those who feel like they've been exiled that they can be adopted into God's family and into his kingdom. Now, before we close this morning, I have a homework assignment for you. We're almost done. I know it's, it's late. But if we're going to humble ourselves before God and before others, how do we do that exactly? How do we put that into practice? We don't have to quit our job tomorrow and become missionaries, and we don't have to sell our houses and use that money to help the homeless. We don't have to go marching for all the rights of oppressed people around the world, although there would be nothing wrong with doing any of those things. But there are some things that we could do right now, this week, right where we're at, in our homes, at our jobs, in our schools, and right here with the people around us. We could ask ourselves a few simple questions. The first question I would ask you is, who can I show kindness to this week? Who do we interact with on a regular basis that we could bless with a random act of kindness? Maybe a cup of coffee. Maybe a card. Maybe some flowers. Maybe you could mow their lawn for them. Maybe it's just a simple smile. We can be creative. We can be personal. And if you really want to challenge yourself and crank it up a notch... Try it with a complete stranger. If you really want to level up, try it with a person that you don't care for, who's offended you, or who you know doesn't like you. Hey, I know it's tough, but remember, when Jesus sees them, he couldn't love them anymore, just like he feels about us. The next question we can ask ourselves this week is, who can I mend a relationship with this week? You know, sometimes I think that when we think about these things, we think, well, we have to go and do this around the world somewhere else to a complete stranger. But that's complete nonsense. Because if we can't start with the people that are right here, right in our lives, then how are we ever going to reach out to the world around us, people that we don't know? Maybe the best way that we could humble ourselves with others this week is to pick up that phone, send that text or that email, have that conversation with that person we've not dared to speak with. And I know that's tough. We may not know what to say, but try starting with, I'm sorry. Or, I don't want to leave things badly between us. 
Or I don't want to let another day go by without saying I forgive you or asking for forgiveness, even if it's not returned. Lastly, we can ask ourselves, who can I reach out to or encourage this week? Is there someone that you come into contact with all the time that you've never really spoken to or gotten to know? Is there someone that's been on your mind? Maybe somebody you've wanted to encourage, but you just haven't gotten around to it. You know, I think that there's probably people in our lives that we interact with every day. We work with every day. We go to class with every day. We walk by every day on the street or in the neighborhood. We may even look them in the eye and say hello, but we've never had a personal, meaningful conversation with them. Maybe that's here. I mean... After all, we come to church every week. We see the same people. But how many of their names do we know? Maybe we could make this the week that we change that, one person at a time. Now, none of these are mutually exclusive. Maybe initiating that conversation and encouraging someone, that's, that's a way to show kindness. Maybe by reaching out and encouraging someone, that's the way to mend that relationship. And definitely by mending a relationship, that's a way to show kindness and give encouragement. But those are real ways that we could begin this week, right now, to humble ourselves in front of other people. So use those blank spaces in, in the notes that I've provided to you. Use it to jog your memory about who may have came to mind when you thought about who I might be kind to this week, who I might mend a relationship with this week, who I might encourage or reach out to. And imagine, what if we all did that and began to build up from there? How would that change our families? How would that change our jobs, our schools, our community? How would it change this church? And how would it change our world? And as we conclude this morning, let's remember that since we've been saved through grace, none of us can boast. That means that we have to treat others with humility, dignity, and respect, just as Jesus did with us. That should inform the way that we treat each other should inform the way that we reach out to the world around us. And that's how we, like a child, humble ourselves before God and before others. And that's also how we become God's great people in his kingdom. Thank you.